what's happening on the Eastern Front, Bakhmut, Leman, Slovyansk and more. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Are Russians' claims of taking over Bakhmut true? What does the situation on the Eastern Front look like? Are there still people living in destroyed frontline villages? This is a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My co-host is Tetyana Noharkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is in charge of international outreach at, at the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian and volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. So, Tana, let, let us talk about the situation on the frontline, both the news and our experiences uh, from our latest trip in which we visited again Kharkiv, Izum, Slovyansk, Liman, um, and uh, Rajharodok, some other cities, some other towns and villages as well. We have also visited the destroyed villages, uh, and this is indeed a very, very tragic experience. So let us first talk about these claims of the Russians that they have taken over Bakhmut. There was a, a recent claim a few days ago by um, by Wagner Group, by Mr. Prigozhin, that they actually control Bakhmut and they put over the Russian flag over the uh, municipal center of the um, the city council. How can we estimate these statements, in your opinion? Mm, well, indeed, there are some statements uh, that uh, they really captured uh, kind of the progress, at least in Bakhmut. And Institute of Study of War confirms that in a way they really succeeded to reach some, to, to advance some hundred meters and really put their flag somewhere. But uh, this is a kind of tactical change, but strategically Ukrainian forces are still controlling Bakhmut. We should understand that Bakhmut is no more a place, is no more a city, is no more a town. For Ukrainian forces, it is uh, military positions. And what is important in Bakhmut from the military point of view is the hill where uh, Bakhmut is situated. So they are trying to do their best to control as long as they can, and their idea that that its strategy is to keep the place, keep their positions, even not the town, and to destroy as much uh, of Russian troops as they can. And everything has its price, for sure, and this is a high price for Ukrainian troops at the same time, because a lot of um, brave Ukrainian soldiers, and some of them are the best, uh, which made uh, significant careers, started from 2014, they unfortunately have been dead during these last weeks and last months in Bakhmut. But the idea is that as long as the ratio between Russian deaths and Ukrainian deaths, we are talking about soldiers, is 3 to 1 or 4 to 1, it makes some sense to try to keep Bakhmut because of that and because they are destroying Russian troops and also because they are defending a kind of strategic line. Unfortunately, we cannot talk about about Bakhmut as a city which is defended because if you look at what's going on in Bakhmut, you'll see clearly, you can see it on satellite pictures 
and also on some videos filmed by both Russians and, and Ukrainian soldiers, you can easily see that this is not about the city itself, because there's no more city in a, in a way. It's quite close to what we observed in, in the pictures, for sure, in Mariupol. So this is a destroyed city, and we should talk about this, uh, about, about, about this situation as a purely military one. And what is the most important for, for, for us is that uh, military units on the side of Ukraine, which are present on the side, they clearly understand that their task is to keep Russians busy as long as it's possible in order to prepare a counteroffensive, which will take somewhere and some, in some place, we don't know exactly when and, and where, but they sacrifice their lives playing for time. And this is a cruel truth about what's going on in Bakhmut. Yes, this is true. And uh, this is true. And this is a tragic truth as well. From what we hear, uh, the battles are for certain specific buildings, sometimes for certain specific floors of the buildings. And uh, Russians might, for example, put the flag on one particular building, even in the central one, but that doesn't mean that they control the whole city. And uh, the battle for the rest, w what is remaining, can, can still last long. But Bakhmut, I think, is, it is also kind of a sign of this nonsense of the Russian invasion, nonsense of the Russian war, because it's, it is not a big city. It's a, it's a city of uh, about 60,000, 60,000, 70,000 people before the big war, about 40 square kilometers. Russians are claiming that they want to occupy the rest of the Donetsk Oblast. In the rest of the Donetsk Oblast, there are much bigger cities like Kramatorsk, which is which was over 100,000 people before the big war, and uh, I think it twice as big in terms of territory than Bakhmut. The same with Slavyansk, a little bit smaller city, but, but still big. So if Russians are attacking Bakhmut, um, and for example, in Slavyansk, as we all know from, from that experience uh, that we had uh, in 2014, there is also a big height, which is called Karachun. And uh, obviously, um, if, we, if we even imagine then that uh, Ukrainians leave Bakhmut, uh, there, there will be still very, you know, good positions to defend Slovyansk, for example, right? Exactly. And not only Slovyansk, we are also talking about Druzhkivka and Konstantinivka, which are two cities, two towns, which are on the way from Bakhmut to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. So still have some, some, some different defense lines. But uh, yes, indeed... Um, what is important? Because we have uh, we, we, listen, we hear a lot of speculations about uh, if there is any military sense to defend Bakhmut, or this is a political decision. According to what we hear from from our chief of commander of Zaluzhny and also General Sirsky, which is personally visiting Bakhmut, he visited Bakhmut many times in recent weeks. So their argument is that there is a military reason to defend Bakhmut. This is not a political decision. This is not uh, only about symbol, because yes, indeed, Bakhmut is a kind of a fortress city. Yes, it's a kind of a symbol for Ukrainians, but it's much more than that. And from the military point of view, 
let's see how it goes, but my guess is that the further developments and specifically linked to what is about counteroffensive will show us quite clearly that what is happening in Bakhmut is quite likely to what was happening in Mariupol, another tragic story where Ukrainian forces were surrounded for many weeks and months, but uh, the mission was not not even to defend the city, because in a way, in a way there were fatality for Mariupol, because when the city is surrounded and Ukrainian troops were far away from that place, they could not rescue uh, Mar- defenders of Mariupol. But the mission of all these brave soldiers was to keep Russians busy for, and to concentrate their effort on Mariupol. And while doing that, they were unable to prog- progress elsewhere. And when you look to what, to what yes, it, this is a cruel truth of the war, that you, you, you have to sacrifice someone to to to, to progress in some other place and to save some other lives. Unfortunately, this is a cruel kind of cruel mathematics, what you are doing when you are chief of commander of an army during the war. Yes, yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, so uh, the story of Bakhmut is, is, is this one. And um, of course, I, I hope that uh, our Ukrainian commanders also count the fact that uh, there is a need, of course, to avoid encirclement of Bakhmut. We know that in- encirclement is another danger and there is only one road which is heading to Bakhmut right now, which is controlled by Ukrainians. Uh, but indeed, I mean, coming coming back to my earlier story that uh, the battle for Bak- Bakhmut uh, lasts from at least... Uh, late July, early August. So it lasts for eight months. Uh, for eight months, Russians cannot take a, a town of 40 square kilometers and uh, uh, and uh, 60,000 uh, people before the war. So this shows also how Russians are progressing. They are progressing very slowly and uh, they are not taking cities, they are destroying them. And this is a big difference with, with Ukrainians, for example. When Ukrainians liberate the, c- the cities, the strategy is absolutely different. The strategy is to cut Russians from supplies. And for example, liberation of Kherson is, 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 is a good example when a big city, really big city, was liberated. We've been to Kherson. Uh, it's not a destroyed city, right? It's, it's a city that uh, when Russians will be pulled, um, pulled from the right, uh, right bank of, uh, of uh, Dnipro, no, uh, left bank, right? Left bank of Dnipro. Uh, where they are right now, so Pearson will come back to life as Mikolaev came back to life. Let's hope. Um, Let's hope so. Uh, so, let us talk empirically, right, about what we have seen in in the surroundings of, of Bakhmut, and uh, by the way, there are other places as well. Uh, there is Avdivka direction, right? There is Marienka direction. There is Liman direction, and in Liman, we've been to Liman. We went to Liman. Not not very far away from Slovyansk. Uh, how much how much did it take? I mean, I mean probably but ten kilometers from Slovyansk. Right? No, a little bit more because uh, first of all, you have Raigorodok. Raigorodok is a, around ten kilometers uh, to the east, and then after Raigorodok, you have still have. I don't remember, 20 minutes by car uh, just to cross this river in a, because the bridge is once again is destroyed and so is this another another bridge, a secret bridge to cross and then you enter this uh, town of Liman which is incredible, incredible landscape now because you had, before the war there was a, an important uh, 
hub, a railway hub in Liman, and the whole city lived out of what was happening around this railway. And now when you, your first impression, you, you enter this railway and you see it's all destroyed, so there is no possibilities for train to, to, to cross, to pass, and the city itself. So Liman was mentioned in the media many times, like in a kind of a positive context, look, Ukrainians finally liberated Liman. But um, our impressions of this liberated city back in September, September, October 2022, are quite pessimistic because when you arrive there, you see what, what does it mean to be, on the, to be on the combat zone and what it means, means to be on the, on the occupation because it's almost completely destroyed. Uh, and a lot of houses are destroyed. There are no, no real life. We've been to railway station where... One could guess a lot of people were present before the war because pe people were traveling and some goods were traveling. There were many kinds of different trains. And you see precisely nobody there. There's nobody there, no shops, no people, nobody on the street, no electricity. Even if we were told that in some on some streets they do have electricity, but this is not, not a place where somebody would like to live because... Even if your house is more or less, so it's damaged, but it's, it still can live inside, it means that, that every morning what you see around you is kind of apocalypse landscape because there's no life. But at the same time, we have seen a few people and uh, we have seen Ukrainian soldiers who are based in, in this town. So we need to understand as well that when we first came to Izum, for example, uh, which was just liberated and Izum was also kind of a ghost town with lots of tragedies, a lot of tragic stories, and we have a podcast about the Zoom. Now, um, every time we go from Kharkiv to Slovyansk, uh, we see that the Zoom is kind of a coming back to life. Uh, a little bit, a little bit, more people, more people. There are markets, supermarkets. Uh, oh no, no, I'm not sure about supermarkets, but shops. And uh, just markets, markets, uh, and um, the gasoline stations, for example. Well, we remember, but Liman when, is different. When, look, uh, look well, Liman was liberated at the same time as Izum, and still, I think that uh, because of the fact this is closer to the front line, in a way, it's much more exposed to, to, to dangers from coming from Russian missiles and Russian artillery, and maybe that's the reason. Yes, why. of course, and it is close to the front line, and therefore. And there are Ukrainian positions there, so it's it's obvious. But we have we have seen uh, people living there. We have talked to several several civilians, yeah, and uh, they actually said that there are diff different districts of of Leman, and, and in some districts there are more people, and in some others there are less people. But indeed, um, there was a big big railway hub, one of the biggest in eastern Ukraine, and. Uh, it's it's of course the question of transportation and l lots of these questions which are not directly maybe linked to physical destruction, but uh, uh, it shows how how for example uh, it's difficult to renew the connections to the, 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 to renew transportation, uh, etc. Right. So to our listeners, I would like to add that uh, why we are going there not only to report but also to bring something useful for our soldiers and in particular cars that can be useful to evacuate the wounded people. Uh, so we are bringing pickups and uh, big cars. And if you want to participate in that, uh, you can find in our description PayPal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com 
We will, of course, appreciate your donations. The cars are really saving life, lives on the front line. So let us let us uh, tell you the story about the functioning of this in medical infrastructure. Um, and in Slovyansk, we have visited our old friends who are actually coming from uh, such discipline as international law. Hendadi Druzenko and his wife Svetlana Druzenko, who are heading the volunteer uh, the medical hospital. The, the, the full name is Pedemsha, Perši Dobrovolči Medicinai Špital imeni Pirohova, the first uh, 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 the first volunteer medical hospital named after Pirohov. And um, these people actually started their work. Uh, uh, I, I, I've known Hennady since early 2000s when we were both working on uh, on the questions how to, how to translate the EU terminology in Ukrainian. So for you to understand how, how transformative the, the stories of people are during this war, now Hennady is heading this uh, volunteer medical hospital uh, they are now based in Slavyansk so what they do they uh, they engage the doctors in the hospital they invite them to work as a volunteers and doctors can work for for one month uh, in this uh, mobile ho- hospital and they help the army to evacuate the wounded and uh, this is this is important how a civic volunteer structure is working together with the army right Yes, indeed. So this is also about volunteering, about the role of civil society, because what they really do, they engage people on the volunteer basis. So normal, ordinary medicals from all around the country, all around Ukraine can, can, can participate in that. They need, for example, this or that kind of doctor for the coming months, so they they publish a kind of call of, propo- call, call it call of proposals or something like that for, for, for people, and they are choosing the best of them, and people are going there on the front line, and they're living on a quite a risky place close to the front line in Slovyansk, and they're traveling to the front line almost every day without being being paid. So this is a kind of a contribution of medicals for this war. So they could have stayed somewhere, somewhere in Kiev or in Lviv or in Zhitomir, any kind of city, but they choose. And we are impressed by, by these people because um, quite a big of number of these people are young doctors, doctors who are in the beginning of their careers. They are young, they are optimistic, they are energetic Contrary to what you can imagine when we talk about medicals on the front line, this is not about only about drama and tragedy. This is also about humor. This is also about this kind of um, community, making a lot of jokes in the evening, for example, even if, yes, indeed, they start every meeting by the uh, by the minute of uh, of silence in just in memory of uh, the victims of this war they have important experience of uh, of helping people and saving lives when sometimes it seemed that it's, it's impossible to save this or that lives they were also helping civilians that told us a couple of stories how they helped civilians, even children between civilians, who were severely um, wounded and they were 
almost no chances to survive, but uh, due to the fact that they had these cars and they had the opportunity to stabilize patients and that they had the opportunity to send them to to the hospital somewhere back inside the country, so they succeeded. And our question to these people was quite simple. Why are you doing that? Because there is uh, some medics in the army. Why do you think that you are still necessary on the front line? And their answer was quite clear. It's never enough. So if you, if you have wounded on the front line and according to their impressions, they for sure didn't provide us exact number, numbers, but from what we understood and we spent a uh, whole evening, night and morning with them, uh, according to what we said, they had much more wounded in the recent weeks, if this what we compare some time ago. So the number of wounded is increasing and we can really guess that number of um, killed Ukrainian soldiers, unfortunately, is also increasing. So they need hands. Uh, Ukrainian army need, needs hands, medicals, both in the official army and both in the in the civil society, volunteer medics, any kind of medics are of great demand on the front line. And uh, l- let us explain how it looks like. So uh, people on the front line, uh, Nanuli, as, as soldiers are, um, are calling that, people on the front line, if, if, if a person is wounded, it is primarily... Uh, very necessary that it is it is being helped by his co-soldiers or the paramedics in in his unit and then uh, that they brought away from the front line and here on that moment these evacuation teams in the army itself in this moment you need cars you need cars like pickups uh, with a big uh, with a big space where you could put a person and then you bring it to um, another unit another point where this ambulance of this uh, uh, volunteer hospital or the the army doctors are coming and they're putting them into ambulance in the ambulance of course they they have the uh, the instruments to to help the person and uh, as our friends from this uh, m- mobile hospital were telling us that th- there were stories when, when uh, a soldier was in clinical death and several times during this trip in a clinical death and then brought back. Um, and then they bro- brought to the stabilization points, which are a little bit far from the front line, some, some dozens of kilometers away as far as I understand. And uh, they, they, have been, they are stabilized there. And uh, only afterwards they are brought to, to hospitals in big towns in big cities. So this is how it looks like and on every moment of this uh, chain of course you need professional help. You need either paramedics in the in the army, not professional doctors but who have the skills of of uh, giving the first aid or you have uh, to have professional doctors. Yes indeed and uh, the most important is they they still need a lot of people to be present and um, I think that in the perspective of the counteroffensive, they will need even more because during any kind of uh, counteroffensive move, when you are not only defending the territory but you are trying to progress, the losses are much higher. So what we are to expect from from now, in the coming weeks and even months, is that they will need this help much uh, more than. Uh, than they do uh, now, and uh, maybe let's uh, let's also talk about the soldiers' mood. We were able to to meet uh, some of the soldiers on the front line a couple of weeks ago, and um, 
what how do they feel during this uh, very strange time when it could seem that nothing is happening because everybody is talking about a counteroffensive but this counteroffensive is not still not here we are expecting it and uh, even we don't know exactly when and where it will take place and we understand that russians are trying to and sometimes they succeed to advance a little bit some kind of dozens of meters or hundreds of meters in 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 different directions in bakhmut and uh, but what is happening on the front line and during the war when, when it seems for kind of outside observer that nothing is happening but in fact what we what we understood from our from our communication with the soldiers that in fact a lot of things are happening because uh, for them they their idea and their motivation is to defend every inch of of ukrainian territory and if uh, russians uh, succeed to progress what they what they do sometimes you to these new tactics and what uh, soldiers were talking about they were talking about infantry and about these new tactics it's small tactics small advanced tactics they are no more using tanks or, or heavy shelling or artillery but they're trying to advance with with in, in infantry regardless uh, the losses they they suffer and they're successful and for ukrainian soldiers who are on the front line this is a real tragedy because if they lose a kind of couple of inches of this territory it means that what they're doing is not is not uh, is not efficient and the mood i would say would quite quite not not so much optimistic because uh, they are staying they're trying to their best to do their job they need drones what we also do for the front line we were we are bringing drones for ukrainian soldiers even if everybody knows that a kind of a drone it doesn't live long time on the front line because it can live a couple of days or a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months as a the the more the latest so it, they are destroyed all the time and we should not underestimate the adaptivity of the russian army this is quite easy to claim that look russian army is was considered to be strong but in fact in fact it was weak it was true back in 2022 in the beginning of this war but what is happening now is that russian army despite the fact that they lack ammunition they lack professionals they lack motivation all of that is true but they still can adapt to the situation and they still can be superior in some kind of combats uh, with Ukrainian army. Yeah, but our hope is that uh, what is happening right now, so the, the key question is who, who exhausting whom? And uh, sometimes the interpretation of the events is that Russians are trying to exhaust Ukrainians, but from what we hear from uh, from from people from the Ukrainian side, it's it's the reverse that Ukraine is trying to exhaust Russians, and uh, when the ratio of that is indeed one to three or one to four, one Ukrainian soldier against four four Russian soldiers, of course that means that Russians are losing more and more people, and here uh, here is 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 what is happening perhaps. On the other hand. Uh, there, there are other units that are preparing for to launch the counteroffensive, and uh, when you go to the front line, it's not necessarily that you understand what is happening because uh, very important things which are happening are probably happening on the training grounds uh, in Ukraine or abroad with uh, with the 
Western weapons with high precision weapons. Uh, this is also very important. So Ukrainians are trying really to prepare the counteroffensive to by destroying through the long range uh, shots by destroying Russian uh, deports, ammunition deports, and and so on. And experts, military experts, tell us that uh, probably counteroffensive might have taken place in May uh, or uh, the beginning of summer. Let's talk about the villages that we have seen. Let's talk about civilians. Uh, you can also check out some other our episodes in which we are we're talking about villages in the eastern Ukraine. Maybe there is something new that we can tell you. Uh, we have visited also, despite uh, except of the villages we visited earlier, like Kamyanka or Dolina. We also visited Bohorodichne um, and um, a village called Dovhenke. What can you say about this? Well, uh, I would say there is no a lot of difference between what was happening in Kamienka and in Bogorodichne. Bogorodichne, it was a village, a very beautiful village of 800 people living there before the war with a beautiful, really beautiful church, which is a part of uh, this monastery in Svetogirsk. Very beautiful church, very beautiful uh, place, pine forests, and a nice place with, um, with a monastery where people were going, were coming in, in summer to have, for vacation. And what we've seen during our trip was really devastating because what you really see, you see kind of absolutely destroyed village without no single house which is still there and what is um, most even more important is that the church itself is completely destroyed by missile strike which happened in, in, in spring summer 2022 and we were told the story how it happened so it was a direct hit by a Russian missile and people there were in the underground in the church nearby so they were happy not to, to have any wounded and killed during that day but when you arrive there and you see the church a beautiful church just completely destroyed a missile you really ask yourself what do the Russians want because by the way, this church belonged to Moscow Patriarchate, so as as well as the monastery in Svetogir. So, what what about the? Do they have any kind of sacred places, and why are they were doing so? And uh, if before the war there were five, eight uh, eight hundred people living there at that very moment, there were only five people living there, and they depend completely on the help. Volunteers, because volunteers they bring food, volunteers they bring sometimes generators, some kind of other help. But uh, given that they, these people they don't have transport, they don't have cars, they cannot move easily in the region. It's impossible to survive in such a surrounding. Yes, and the, the example of this church shows uh, basically the, the the tragic paradox of this war. Russians uh, claim that they came to Ukraine to liberate uh, the Russian speakers and they killed Russian speakers uh, to liberate Russian-speaking cities and they kill people in Russian-speaking cities uh, or pe mostly Russian-speaking cities. They uh, destroy the districts in Kharkiv and uh, uh, mostly Russian-speaking uh, city and uh, they uh, sent missiles to Dnipro in which people are also mostly uh, Russian speakers, and uh, and what is happening with the, with the church, uh, with with the religion, is that uh, they destroying the churches, which actually 
affiliated with them. And we have seen that in Bohorodichne and we have seen that also in Kiev Oblast, in some other places. In Kiev Oblast, one of the uh, villages, we have seen totally destroyed wooden, beautiful wooden church, uh, which survived uh, both uh, First and Second World Wars and uh, was destroyed by the Russians. Um, so this is what happening. This church in Bohorodichne, it, it really has this, I don't know how it is, the dome of it or cupola of it just fell down and we posted the videos of it on our Twitter, you can check. And it's it really looks like a beheaded church, a church without a hat. And this is maybe also very, very dramatic, but very symbolic. Another thing that we were told that people were buried also in the in the in the... Uh, court in the uh, backyard of this church, also something that we have seen uh, uh, kind of a trend uh, in, in many places when you, 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 you finally don't have any time or capacity or institutions to make the burial, so you just put people into, into earth, uh, mostly near churches or in some other place. Another another village that we have seen is called uh, Dovhenke, and here uh, not only it is destroyed, and uh, we actually haven't we ha we have seen only one person there, uh, but uh, the the locals told us that it was attacked by the Russians with phosphor bombs, and uh, and therefore it produced lots of fire, so many many houses just were burned down, and. Uh, really uh, apocalyptic landscape you might see uh, in this village and again you can check Ukraine world um, Twitter and also Twitter of uh, l'Ukraine en français uh, which is uh, which is led by Tatiana uh, Ukrainian French uh, so both in French and in English we we show these villages and we explain what is what is going on but one of the dramatic things is the mining right so this is a region or not only industrial one but also agricultural one and uh, what can we say about mining Yes, indeed. So what was giving life to all these kind of villages around uh, in Kharkiv region and in Donetsk region is that there were a lot of land around these villages and there were a lot of different companies which were active in the field. But what's happening now is that all these lands are mined now after this Russian invasion. And as far as there are no people inside villages, there will be no work for them because the, the, the mining, it takes a lot of time. Uh, as far as we know at that very moment that uh, uh, Ukrainian services, they try to demine roads, first of all, because they need roads for military um, action, for just for, for the most, the simplest things, for logistics, etc., but they really have no resources and no capacities to demine everything. So that's why, for example, as we described in our previous podcast about Kamienka, some people, they still um, explode on the Russian mines somewhere inside the villages because the mining services had no time to come there and to demine it. And when it comes to land, this is the same story. There's huge surfaces, huge surfaces, and anything can happen there. And nobody would like to take a risk just to try to cultivate this land once again without being sure that uh, people walking on the field will, will be still alive. So it will take a lot of time. And if there is no land, if there is no demining, 
mining. It means that there is no work. And it also means that there will be no people coming back to this village to reconstruct it. And when, for example, the locals were discussing electricity, they say that there are some conditions for for the state to, to restore electricity to the village because they need some number of people being present inside just to to, to to start this reconstruction because if there is nobody they will not waste their resources to to provide with electricity a village where nobody is living and this is precisely the problem of, of this of Henke Henke was living completely out of these two enterprises present on the field, both were agricultural and as far as the old land is mined around these villages, there will be nobody wanting to come back and there will be no work, there will be no money, there will be no families coming back and there will be no electricity. So this is a kind of visual cycle, circle which is created by this by this uh, senseless aggression and it creates a kind of space of death. There is no, no way out out of this. Yes, and villages are mo- mostly vul- vulnerable because cities are being paid attention to and villages, of course, are much more much more difficult. Uh, okay, in Kamyanka, when we came there for the first time, we were told that probably there is five to ten people who are living now. And now we have been told that there are about 25. So there is a very little trend. Uh, but you should understand that these are mostly elderly people, not young people. Elderly people who are just accustomed to live there for, for their whole life. And these tragic stories when, uh, when a person goes uh, to... Um, across the village or to the fields to get some wood uh, because he or she needs this wood for uh, for, for heating uh, and just get explode get exploded on this lipest key uh, these Russian mines plastic mines which are not really detectable by the uh, metal or steel seeking um, machines demining machines and uh, when you step on this, Lipistock. Lipistock means a, a leaf, a tree leaf. When you s- step on it, you most probably will uh, will lose your leg. And uh, there were several stories in this village of, of this. Therefore, when we when we go there, we we try to be very careful and really not to uh, step uh, away from from the big roads. So this is the reality uh, of. Uh, Eastern Ukraine, of these places, which are beautiful places, beautiful landscapes, um, not only industrial, but also agricultural, beautiful forests, beautiful plains. But this is uh, what Russian aggression brings here, the destruction, and actually they're turning it into a desert when there is no people. And this is a really shocking um, experience when you come somewhere and you understand that most people have left yeah so this is this is really a reality but we hope that the life will come back as is it is coming back to many many other places in ukraine uh, this is a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraineworld.org Volodymyr Yermolenko and Tetyana Oharkova were with you thank you for listening don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld and you can also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.